The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So wrote Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1864, in the midst of the American Civil War. Of course, those are the words that we hear annually at this time, peace on earth, goodwill to men, Charlie Brown Christmas and everything, always included. But whether it be 1864, when we are in the midst as a nation of a war between our own countrymen, or now in a world that is still plenty in disarray, uh, where peace and goodwill are hardly uh, the order of the day, it seems a little silly to year after year come here on Christmas morning and talk about how Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I mean, if this is what peace and goodwill look like, uh, maybe we should start shooting for something else. Uh, those really are some tough questions that should be answered on Christmas. One should want to ask an answer, especially in times when sentiment can be so intoxicating that we just let the warmth of, of a nice day and a nice meal with family and gift-giving, you know, a day or two off work, they let us forget for a moment the kind of status of the world, and that's a good thing to forget from time to time, the status of the world. Uh, but the reality is the world is still really a messy place. And for some of you, you know, it gets even more difficult this time of year as you watch other people kind of bask in the glow of Christmas. Uh, it can make your own wounds all the more acute or your own things, uh, the things that are lacking in your own life all the more obvious. There is no doubt that this child born 2,000 years ago in some sense, changed the history of the world. But there is also no doubt that the world has a long way to go to embody this claim of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. If that's what Jesus came to bring, and if that's indeed what the angels announce in our text, what gives? You know, is he really bringing peace on earth? And if so, when? And what does it look like? The answers are there, but oddly, they're not as comfortable as we'd want them to be. And I do pray that we'd have the courage to hear them this morning as it comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. And so the first thing I want us to see in our time together is peace on earth achieved. Peace on earth achieved. Our reading, you will notice this morning from Luke's Gospel, comes to us at a very specific historical moment. Mark that. Luke wants you to know the time and the place and the historical milieu into which Jesus was born. This is a historical account of an actual baby born in an actual place at a very specific time in the world's history. And Luke goes out of his way to make sure you have all the markers necessary to know exactly when he entered the world. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and then he marks it even further. That sentence came under Quirinius and so forth. See, Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, one of the most well-known of all the Caesars, probably only second to Julius Caesar for most of us. The nephew of Julius Caesar, this Augustus, was famous for several things, but more than anything else, he is known uh, for what we have come to term, what was termed then, the Pax Romana, or the peace, the great peace of Rome. This period of time that began under Caesar Augustus and lasted for 200 years in the Roman Empire 
when in one sense they stopped doing this forceful uh, empire building and kind of lived in a somewhat peaceful, tranquil, uh, and prosperous time in their own history and in the history of those who were under their dominion. Uh, It's interesting, three times in the reign of Caesar Augustus, which began in 29 B.C., the gates of the temple of Janus, the, the, the Roman god of war, were closed. I mean, there's no need to go worship the god of war when there are no more wars to be fought. That had only happened two times in all of Rome's history before that, and happened three times in the short term in which Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire. Before the Pax Romana, there had never been such a large peace for this number of times in any given time in human history. It was considered nothing short of a miracle. I mean, perhaps the biggest miracle of all was Rome convinced the people under their rule that this was also a time of peace for them. And they very happily, it seemed, at least uh, happy enough to not uh, cause too many insurrections, paid their taxes and also ruled their own little bits of the empire with their own local magistrates and seemed to live in relative, again, peace mainly because It was the greatest time in their own history for most of those nations that were under Rome's jurisdiction as far as their own prosperity, because Rome made things possible for them to do that they had never done before, whether it be through roadways and access. There was all sorts of things that Rome uh, empowered the people under their rule to do that they'd never been able to do previously. Not only did he have to convince those foreigners who were under their rule, but they had to convince Romans who had been warriors for so long in their history that it was better for them to live at peace and just enjoy the spoils of war instead of going to collect more, which may seem like a small task to us. That seems like a better way of life, but when that has been your history for so long, it's not easy to tell the people that the empire, if you will, has gained enough territory. Of course, this sort of far-reaching peace required some conflict here and there, The Jews would find this out not too far from our text, less than 40 years or so, well, about 70 years from our text. The Jewish temple would be completely torn to the ground by this same peaceful Roman Empire when the religious wars began. But you see, it was still all said and done, a notable time in human history for peace. And the glory, of course, of peacetime is the rise of culture-making. When you don't have any wars to fight, you can start to do things like, you know, paint (laughs) and and do pottery. Uh, You know, you look at the Roman Empire, architecture and engineering, technology and travel all flourished under this particular time of Augustus' reign. Roads were built, something that had never been seen like it in the history of the world. There was an elaborate aqueduct system that was built that made life way more simple and delightful uh, for the people under the Roman rule. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you like your indoor plumbing. They liked it as well. The rise of communications, the discovery of things like cement, which led to architectural feats like the Colosseum and the Pantheon. Uh, There was a rise in the arts. I mean, even the greatest of Roman literature, or probably the only parts of the Roman literature you know, mostly came from this period of Augustus' reign. Uh, Whether it be Virgil, uh, and the, uh, the Aeneid uh, that he wrote, at least the, in the latter part of Augustus' reign, or Horace, uh, these were largely written under this period of time. Virgil speaks so highly of uh, Augustus that in his poem he writes 
about his fa- uh, of Aeneas visiting the underworld where he meets his dead father, who prophesies of this coming one, a son of God named Caesar Augustus, who will establish a great peace. You can get a sense, if you will, of his greatness, Augustus's greatness, and his renown, even by his name, Augustus. You know, we still use that word from time to time. He is an august one, one who has glory or weight. This wasn't his given name in birth. It was a name that was given to him by the Senate of Rome. They thought so highly of him that they took his, you know, given name, Gaius Octavian, and they said, no, you will be named Caesar the Great One, Caesar the Augustus, one worthy of honor. They marked his birthday uh, in such a way that it began to be the marking of time in Rome, that the new year was decided by, well, what's your birthday, Great One? That will be the beginning of our new year. And they wrote concerning the occasion. They, display, they, they described their decision this way. Providence that orders everything in our lives has displayed extraordinary concern and compassion and crowned our life with perfection itself. It has brought into the world the most revered one and filled him with a heroism for the benefit of all mankind, a savior for us and our descendants. He will cause wars to cease and order all things well. When he appeared, he exceeded the hopes of all who anticipated good news. And the birthday of this God marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his coming. Luke gives a clear nod to the expansive rule and power of Augustus even in our text. You notice what he says. Augustus decided that the whole world should be taxed. And so he sent out a decree. And what's the next thing you see? The whole world begins to move. Everyone returns to their own hometown. Augustus speaks and everybody acts. He truly is the ruler of the known world. He is a big deal. So why the history lesson? Especially here on Christmas Sunday. Well, because I want you to hear these most famous Christmas Bible verses the way that they would have been heard when announced by the angels. And so the second thing I want us to see is peace on earth announced. When the angels break into our scene, you notice they come suddenly without any forewarning and they break in with an announcement of a birth of a great one. And listen carefully, mark carefully the language they use. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. We'll speak to that in a second. Why is this so fascinating? Well, in one sense, because of its redundancy, its uselessness. I mean, angels come to a world offering peace on earth that already has peace on earth. The peace of Rome already dwells in the world. It is named that even in the time of his existence, people are acknowledging that this is the peaceful time of the earth thus far in human history. And the angels come saying, hey, we have someone who's going to bring world peace. And everyone would look around and say, we already have that someone. He's already been named. He already marks time. In fact, he just called for us all to travel around the world to be taxed at this particular time in history. I mean, who's going to buy what you're selling if what you're selling is already 
freely given on the market. I mean, you see this year after year in politics, right? If the politician preceding you that's in office has a very strong economy, you can't come running on the economy. Because everyone says, well, we already have a great economy. What are you going to offer us that we already are assured of with the man who's in office? So you have to come running on foreign policy or something else. You have to diminish what the guy doesn't have. And so here comes these angels saying, hey, we have a new king to announce. He'll give you peace on earth. And everyone just would say, well, ho-hum, we already have peace on earth. You know, what, what else can you give us? And so for God to send his messengers this way seems like a strange tactic. Of course, this Roman peace would fade in 200 years. So maybe that's what was being offered. Peace on earth that lasts longer than the peace that you currently have. Well, of course, the problem is there isn't peace on earth even now. So if that's what they're offering, it didn't come to pass, and it seems again like a very strange offer to be given to those who had it at the moment and couldn't be guaranteed from that moment forward because even to this day we don't have peace on earth. So what is going on? God is offering either something people don't need, a peace on earth that they already have, or something that he didn't deliver, peace on earth that hasn't been accomplished even to this very day, or he is offering peace of a different sort. I mean, maybe he's offering the peace on earth that, like, you know, that Oprah offers, or the Buddhists, or, you know, Eckhart Tolle, uh, you know, that inner peace where we just kind of feel at peace with ourselves no matter how chaotic the world is around us. Or maybe it's something else altogether. I mean, year after year, we come to celebrate this. On Christmas cards, there's always a stiff competition between peace on earth and joy to the world. Uh, We say these things every single Christmas, but we should stop to ask ourselves, what is it that we're celebrating, and is it even meaningful? What does it mean to have peace on earth if there is no peace on earth? And even our inner peace is often subject to so much turmoil. Well, finally this morning, I want to see peace on earth received. Peace on earth received. The Bible helps us out quite a bit with this, uh, even in the text that is before us this morning. Uh, It may not seem obvious, but it names for us exactly what it's offering. The sort of peace that is announced is here, and we should ask ourselves if we want it at all. Well, we can know from Luke what it's not before we get into what it is. I mean, you can read just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, And Jesus, from his own mouth, will make real clear that oftentimes what we project that Jesus said he was coming to bring, he had no intention of bringing at all. It says in Luke chapter 12, I came to cast fire on the earth, and I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, I've come to bring division, or as Matthew puts it, I have come to bring a sword. So when we say Jesus came to bring peace on earth and we think, well, it's all about, you know, wars ending or kind of, you know, this uh, give peace a chance sort of uh, all we're saying, you know, uh, everyone getting together to sing about, uh, you know, the hippie movement together. That's clearly not what Jesus is offering. He says in no uncertain terms by Luke 12, did you think I came to bring peace on earth? Like, no, I didn't come to bring that at all. I came to bring a sword, which sounds the exact opposite, of course, of the kind of pacifistic Jesus that we preach so often. He lets us know right away that that is not what he means. He does not mean that he came to bring an end to all human infighting and all wars as far as we know them in our present history. The fact that poets can write about peace on earth and mean it in the midst of wartime, like we read this morning in Wadsworth, 
is not a contradiction to what Jesus says he came to bring, not according to Scripture. And he also makes plain it's not primarily or, or it's not merely or primarily an inner peace. Surely what Jesus gives does bring inner peace. It's not merely an emotive reality. And we learn that from the verses themselves. They teach us that. Notice, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And that's probably not how you remember this verse, because most of us were raised hearing these verses in the King James Version, which are very beautiful. They're really well written. Uh, And, of course, they read in this particular text, uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so, again, that fits right in a lot of kind of with how we feel this time of year, like peace and goodwill to everybody. You know, we spread cheer, all of these good things. But that is not what the text says. The manuscript evidence and the context show that this reading really is deficient. Notice the first clause. The angels come and they say, glory to God in the highest. Notice what is going on there. Glory is the subject, right? In the highest is the location, and God is the recipient. The next thing, peace on earth to men who are favored. Peace is the subject, on earth is the location, and the recipients are men whom God has found favor with. It's a poem that has matching uh, poetic symbols in it. Uh, And you'll notice... The way that we normally read it is there's general peace on earth and general goodwill to men. The problem, of course, is while the sentiment is great, there is not peace on earth, nor is there general goodwill to men, and it doesn't make any sense in the context in which Luke is writing. And what is the context? Angels announcing a birth of a particular child during a particular period of time, offering a particular kind of peace, even though relative world peace already exists in their time. So what is being offered to men who are favored? Well, we know the answer is peace, but the question is, what sort of peace? What kind of peace is being displayed or given to them? That is the question of Christmas. It's really the very question of our life. Notice in the text, the favored ones have peace with God. Which means the big deal about Christmas is about a conflict not among the nations and not among political parties, but a conflict that is happening between God and man that needs a resolution. And if God doesn't do something, it's never going to be solved. This relationship between heaven and earth shows that there's been some sort of separation, a division that has occurred at some point in history, and apparently there's a problem between the God of heaven and the men who dwell on earth, and there's no peace between them. And it's clear that Luke means this. You can see even, you know, as you go through those birth announcements, these angels break forth a few times in Luke, right? This is the third time they've entered a scene unexpectedly. And the second time is when they meet with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And every time they meet with the the previous characters, a song is sung, right? Mary sings, and then Zechariah sings. And Zechariah's song ends like this. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord and you'll prepare a way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Hold that in your mind. He says, you're going to go and prepare a way because you're going to proclaim salvation which equals the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God 
by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So notice for Zechariah, peace is born out of the forgiveness of sins. An announcement comes and God says, okay, I'm going to forgive your sins. He says, now those who are sitting in darkness can walk in the way of peace. Because what was formerly problematic has been removed from the way. You see, because of sin, there has been a war from the beginning between God and humanity. Since the moment of your conception, you have been in an odd and ill-fitting relationship with God. We are born at enmity with our Maker. You may not believe that, but you feel that. I mean, it's part of why you experience guilt. It's part of why you experience even what feels like irrational fear from time to time. It's why we are so prone to defend ourselves and protect ourselves, even when we know we're clearly wrong. We will fight tooth and nail to be in the right. Well, why is that? Because we have this ugly, sinking feeling that someone is out to get us, that we really do need to be okay or there's going to be a problem at the end of the day. And so we will fight with all that we have to justify ourselves so that we don't feel shame and guilt. As one author writes, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but they, the, harm does not, the harm does not interest them. Or they don't see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. You know, we fight all life long to tell and to convince ourselves we're okay. Why do we need to convince ourselves of that? Who's out to get us? What is this big deal? What if we're not okay? Well, can't we just, you know, cash it in and say, so what? Well, because in us, because we're made in the image of God, we know something is terribly awry, and someday we know somehow we're going to have to answer for it. And that somehow and that something is God and the judgment that he comes to bring. Because of this history of sin, and with it our history of needing to and wanting to hide from God because of sin, we avoid this subject so often. Paul tells us that we were born dead in trespasses and sins. Following the course of this will, world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Listen to this. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul says, he's not saying you're children of wrath, you're, you're, you're angry kids, you know, your kids that are just always, that's not what he's saying. You're children who are under wrath. Well, whose wrath? The very wrath of God, your maker, born from the beginning at war with the God of all creation. And into that world and into that war, these angels come announcing peace on earth. There has been no peace between God and man since the fall in the garden. And no one has escaped it. And no amount of Pax Romana or American exceptionalism or career advancement or charitable deeds are ever going to be sufficient to fix the problem of humanity. No peace that could cover this globe would deal with the peace that is really needed. The reality that God and man are in a broken relationship. And if God doesn't do something to fix it, there is no fixing. Of course, that story doesn't sell super well during Christmas. 
when we're roasting chestnuts by an open fire and decking our halls with boughs of holly. And so we make it about, you know, the warm, fuzzy feelings of peace and goodwill toward our neighbor. But the fact is, this is what makes Christmas worth celebrating. That there really was a war between God and man. But God did not stay at a distance, but put on human flesh and broke into our history, into the middle of one of the greatest rules in human history, as an infant child with whom Rome was not concerned at all. And the angels announce over his birth, now there will be peace on earth on every single person that God finds favor with. A peace that comes to us from heaven. Because not one of us could gain or reach heaven ourselves. A peace that is announced and then accomplished by a child in a manger. A little one lying there that will later be laid upon a cross in death. And on that cross, he's not taking the wrath of Rome, nor is he taking or bearing the anger of the Jewish leadership. But he's bearing the very wrath of God against sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he bears that punishment and all of that anger from his father so that you and I could once and for all have objective peace with God. That the God who was angry with us since conception could say, no more. Everything that I've held against you is done. It has all been paid for in full. And you and I are okay. That our relationship is healed and there is peace between you and me. Whether you feel at peace or not, whether your whole life is in shambles, whether there's turmoil all around you, whether you're in the midst of war, that the greatest need that you had, reckoning with the God who you, who you will stand before, uh, before at the end of all things, that relationship has been healed once for all. As Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Since therefore now we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So notice he says, You've been justified. You've been counted just because of Christ's blood. And now you have peace with God, and you no longer need to fear the wrath of God that was coming against you. Now listen to this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen to all that language. Peace and wrath and reconciliation. You know, it's this time of year. We even watched it in a movie last night. Christmas is the time of reconciliation, right? So you've got to get together for family dinner, and it's like, well, we haven't talked to, you know... Aunt so-and-so for, for six months, I guess now it's time to, you know, make this relationship right so Christmas doesn't turn into a complete disaster. I guess it's a time of year where we make peace with one another. That's the language God is saying. You know, we had a problem. And God reconciled us to himself through the blood of his son so that he's no longer angry with us. And we have objective peace with our maker. We sing about it even this morning. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That is what Christmas is about. And it's true now 
for all of those who trust in Christ, you have peace with God. Or better yet, God has made peace with you. And it's over. The war is all done. There's no more battles to be fought. It can't be taken away. It can't be added to. Your bad disposition or your best works aren't going to affect it one way or the other. God has dealt with you once and for all through the gift of His Son, both in incarnation but ultimately through the crucifixion and resurrection, so that those who are enemies can now be called friends. And that is what you are as you sit here this Christmas morning in Christ. And may it be because of that a Merry Christmas for all of you. Let's pray.